You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increased awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion across the autism community. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. This week, I'm excited to welcome Anna Bullard from the BHCOE, that's the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence, back to the podcast to talk with us about government relations on a state and national level as it relates to autism care. We're going to talk about what's currently going on in the legislature and what you can do to help make change. Anna is the ideal person to talk about this with us today, as she's currently the VP of Government Relations at the BHCOE. Anna also successfully passed legislation named after her daughter, Ava, who had been diagnosed with autism. Ava's law created access to therapy for individuals diagnosed with autism in Georgia. Her, pers her perseverance and knowledge in government relations and, and business development has led to thousands of lives accessing care nationally. Anna, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jeff. So glad to be here. Well, we're glad to have you back. Uh, the last time we talked, I believe, was uh, episode number 49. And that's I, when we were learning a little bit about Ava's Law. But what's what's new right now? What's coming across your plate that, uh, that you're hearing or seeing in the autism world that you're going to be able to share with us today? Yeah, I mean... You know, Jeff, there are there are a lot of interesting pieces of legislation out there this year. Um, things just kind of popping up. Uh, it's actually been a challenge to really keep up. Um, I'm surprised <laughs> at how much legislation um, is really underway. A lot of it has to do with trying to align ABA with some of the other healthcare practices, right? So you're going to see licensure coming into play, uh, whether it's licensure for BCBAs, licensure for facilities, you know, you and I have talked a little bit about that. Um, and then school-based services. Um, there's, you know, several bills uh, to um, address limitations uh, with children accessing care in the school. So um, a, a lot um, access issues um, or issues related to, you know, trying to help ensure children are, you know, protected where they're getting served. So in a lot of healthcare, is that you've, you've seen a constriction over time where like it feels like laws are, are being peeled back. It, it doesn't feel that way with autism at the moment. It feels like we're able to continue to open things up and that and people are are getting more service and even the idea of care is starting to evolve. What is it? What is it that you think right now, with it being Autism Awareness Month, um, World Autism Month, and being such an important time for us to be able to accept uh, autistics and the skills that they're bringing to the world, but also at the same time being able to treat? Where's that balance coming legislatively? Are we doing enough? Do you think to be able to see both lenses? No, <laughs> I can just, you know, I don't think so. I, I say that because, um, you know, there's still so much disparity. Um, there's so many kids still who cannot access um, even basic healthcare services uh, to help them um, be able to live more independent lives, uh, whether that is ABA or whether that's other types of behavioral health services or whether that service is in their school setting to help them be successful. Um, you know, I'm, I'm still really surprised at 
um, how schools, you know, really embrace autism. And I talked to a parent last week who was given one option, and that was a self-contained classroom. And, and you know, it, it's just trying to help her maneuver through and under and, and being able to advocate in a very challenging situation um, and in a situ situation where she definitely doesn't feel like the expert, right? But she has to be the expert to help ensure her, her child isn't just left behind. I mean, this is a child who should be allowed to be integrated um, to the best of his ability in a natural environment. Um, on the healthcare side, we see many restrictions in, in school, right? I mean, whether it's a restriction from some odd, you know, policy, you know, that like in Florida, where there's just this, you know, policy that I don't really think was intended to restrict RBTs from being able to be in the school. Um, I don't think that was why it was originally, uh, I, you know, let, I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt here, right? I mean, I don't, I really don't, but, but that's what is, what that legislative policy, it was really policy was doing. So really trying to overcome that so kids can be successful. I mean, I feel like the reason that Ava was able to be as successful as she has been was because of the integration with ABA therapy and then working with the school to ensure that she was receiving those services she needed and blending all that together has led to her being able to be independent and graduate in a, a, a regular ed classroom. And that's that's one of the most painful things to, to see is the fact that there are those restrictions is that autism doesn't stop just because you go to school and your healthcare needs don't stop because you're in school and oftentimes in order to get the most out of the education, the most out of the social opportunities is that you need that treatment following you to be able to, to empower you through those times. So what is the legislation that you're currently seeing around schools and, and what is the hope on that legislation? What would be the ideal process that comes from that? I think it's twofold, Jeff, right? Because you really have to look at the separation in healthcare services and education services. There, there is a delineation. There, there's not a place to me where, um, where you can um, blend those two things in the sense of, of, of saying it, it's one or the other, right? You should have both. And, and I think that's the part that can be challenging um, and you do have to be careful with legislation related to children receiving services in an education setting. And to me, it's not it's not black and white. It, it can't be right. It, that's the point of medical necessity, where when you're talking about healthcare services, being able to look like to look at ensuring there's no restrictions on that child being able to access their healthcare in any setting a school setting, community setting. I'm shocked sometimes in certain states where actually a child receiving services in a community setting is restricted. I mean, that blows my mind. You know, someone helping them be able to go to the grocery store, go out to eat, those types of normal activities um, are restricted uh, from being billed by, you know, a, a, a therapy um, service. And so, you know, but in the school setting, there also has to be, um, there has to be an effort put forth for kids with autism in what is evidence-based 
to help them being successful in their actual education. Um, so I, I look at I look at it as two separate things, and I think that you have to have appropriate legislation um, on both sides. And and you know as as you talk through that, it it makes I mean perfect sense that whether it's the community setting or the school setting is that in those environments you're allowing other medical uh, practices. You're you're actually encouraging to be able to normalize care. You're trying to be able to make it so that everything that somebody's receiving is that they benefit from the community around them. And it, it doesn't make sense. And I agree with you is that the restrictions seem relatively arbitrary on this. And is this does this fall into kind of a the Mental Health Parity Act? I mean, where is it that the that the federal government might be coming in on this? And is that helping any of the government relations that you're doing on the state level? Yeah, I definitely think mental health parity uh, is um, I do think location applies to, you know, when you're talking about mental health parity, um, if you're not restricting, you know, medical benefits in any other, you know, setting, then, you know, services for autism should not be restricted. Um, so that that definitely should apply. I think where um, it becomes more challenging in the area of school services being received in the school is that there is that line where a lot of schools will argue that they are able um, and, you know, I mean, we, we all know that that no school is intended to provide healthcare services, um, you know, uh, through the, the academic staff or, or the, the special education staff that they have. But it, I do see that a lot where schools really, um, you know, draw that line saying, well, this is our role. Um, and, and then there are a lot of schools who are uh, very welcoming uh, to others, but I, I think being able to really distinguish that, and that goes back to the clinicians um, being able to ensure that the medical necessity criteria is, you know, is being able to really um, write that treatment plan where it is able to be expressed explicitly that it's in order to help that child be able to meet goals that are not necessarily academic related, right? But we all know there is some mesh in that, right? There is some level of, of overlap when you're talking about socialization. But ultimately, to me, what, the, what it should look like is you should have that piece of healthcare that integrates that child and then ideally eventually be able to be transferred over to where that child can. Um, not, not every child is going to be able to do that. And, and certainly there is no um, magic number. There is no after 30 days, um, you know, everybody's different. And we know with autism, you know, there, there's always, um, there's always barriers that come up that we never can foresee. Uh, and I think that's the challenging part for all of us. And, and, and even, um, autistic individuals, you know, things that come up that are surprising and that that really can be a setback. So there to me, there's no magic number. There's no magic, you know, uh, you know, black and white where you could say do this or do that. Um, it should be individualized on both sides. 
Yeah, and the the thought that there is a wall or a very concrete decision making process to say this is educative, this is not educative. I think that that is a, a very gray area. I don't know that there's a very uh, linear thought process to okay, well, this is where education ends and this is where socialization begins. And the way that you're looking at that, I think, as a clinical field, is that we should all approach it similarly. Is is saying that you know. The goal is is independence across all these environments the child wants to be in. And if that's independently learning, if that's being able to access a group learning environment, we don't have to be in control of a curriculum on the clinical side, nor should we be in control of an academic curriculum. But for that medical benefit for the child is that they need to be able to access it. And if their behavioral or their learning profiles are not allowing for it, well, then we should be helping with that. We should be assisting in that process. So I love the fact that right now is that there's a lot of advocacy around that. Is that is that advocacy coming from grassroots similar to Ava's law? Or is this something that is being pushed more in the clinical end? It's interesting uh, because I do think it it is really being driven um, in, in my perspective where I'm seeing the, the most activity um, on the clinical side. I certainly think it's parents, um, but I think the clinicians are having to be the ones to to push harder because they're the ones that are having to really show that it is medically necessary. Um, you know, it's it's that it's that important piece of the the puzzle that the clinician is able to to really um, meet that criteria, right? Um, and and then I also think that there is a place on the where parents are saying you're not able to meet my child's needs and you know the parent is is really i think and and this is how i was i don't really care who pays for it <laughs> i mean that's from a parent perspective i thought if you if if my insurance should pay for it if the school should pay for it i mean i think parents are very frustrated um, they want their child to be successful. They want their child to be able to be integrated and have friends and have experiences and go to, you know, music class or art class or even to the lunchroom with their peers and those simple things. And then, you know, definitely the, the academic part. But, you know, I think parents are just at a at very frustrated at saying whoever can help my child and help them the best, of course. We want that, right? Mm -hmm. But I think clinicians who are really having to drive it from the point of being able to to help express why. And it seems like a paradigm shift. I mean, when, mm -hmm. when I think back to the original work that started opening up autism care, it was completely parent-led. It was grassroots. <laughs> it was the clinicians took a back seat and it, it feels like there's almost like an education gap right now that the clinicians that the clinicians need to be informing legislative processes on what that service really is and what the medical part to that service is. Is there is there other legislation that's starting to open up? I know that we just went through a, a pretty long period of having to be creative with care models and telehealth was a big piece of that. Are you seeing legislation on telehealth? Is there going to be an extending process for that? Are, are states welcoming it on the go forward, whether that's for diagnostics or whether that's for some of the treatment that's occurring 
um, past diet diagnostic processes for the actual uh, allocation of care. Yeah, I think telehealth is, as we've seen through the pandemic, right? It's it's a critical component to mental health services and behavioral health services. Absolutely critical component. Um, in Georgia, when we worked on Medicaid, we knew that telehealth had to be included because Georgia is such a rural state, right? And 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 I mean anything outside of Atlanta it's difficult to access any type of behavioral health services or mental health services. Um, even in Atlanta, you're going to see wait lists. So, you, you know, for us, it had to be a piece of the policy. So when we got Medicaid coverage in 2018, telehealth was included in that. I mean, it was embedded into the policy from day one. And, you know, that includes that can include diagnostic services. It can include psychological services. So you could, or you know, any type of behavioral health service. But it also includes ABA. So from the standpoint of a of your BCBA being able to, uh, you know, get on with FaceTime or um, and through the pandemic. I mean, there was even a lot of non, you know, just telecommunication allowed. Um, I know for me back all the way in 2008, um, you know, there was no service. And so private paying for ABA was very expensive. Um, and uh, we we used to record sessions on the computer um, and we loaded them into a private YouTube account. So our BCBA could go in and watch them and then come back and tell me, you know, this is what your technician needed, you know, I mean, so I, I feel like I, you know, I could not have made it without that. Um, so I feel like it's a critical component. I think it obviously has to be evaluated on on what, you know, what children it's appropriate for. Um, and that's such an important piece, but I think it's such a valuable component. And you mentioned the underserved populations geographically, but mm -hmm. what I've, I've been into conversations with pediatricians and psychologists alike about, and I, I guess I'll, I'll put this into the framework of diagnostics right now, but talking through this, it's, it's not just the geographic dispersion that you're actually having to tackle. It's you don't have enough clinicians who can culturally ingrain, uh, integrate with the communities they're in, is that sometimes you need um, language barriers that you need to be able to remote access into because you don't have enough Spanish speaking in one population or you don't have enough people that speak Mandarin in one population. It, it could be a variety of different things. And this just opened up, opens up adequacy of network. And the legislation that's going on around this right now, I think is, is crucial for us on a go forward to be able to create a better treatment model that's more equitable and provides more access, which are both important things. What other what other key features of legislation? I mean, you had spoken about school. We we hit on telehealth. What is is there anything else that really is driving right now? I think there's a you know a couple of areas, uh, a couple of states that have um, Georgia was one that had licensure for BCBAs, um, and. You know, I, I certainly am not uh, philosophically opposed at all to licensure. I think what we've seen come about from that is just huge delays 
in timelines for BCBAs to obtain those licenses. And I think I'm I'm going to just say from my experience, um, you know, which may not uh, be the popular opinion for some of uh, BCBAs who are real strong advocates for licensure. Um, my what I learned from Ava's law and, and even working in some other states and on legislation is you have to be so careful um, that when you are bringing forth legislation that is related to the autism benefit in any way, there is always risk, always, um, because there's always opposition. And I don't know why. And I still to this day, from the day I started working in 2007 um, on, you know, politics and things related, you know, government relations related to autism, I didn't understand it then. And and I, I understand it now, but I, I guess I just am still shocked at the opposition. Um, so there's risk and you see those things happen, like what is happening in Illinois, where RBTs get thrown in, um, where they need to be licensed. And then in Illinois, there was this other piece that got amended literally at the in the bottom of the night um, that would significantly uh, you know, restrict businesses who are LLCs from practicing in the state of Illinois. Those things are critical. And when you bring forth legislation related to autism, there's always risk. And so, you know, that's one of the things that in Georgia with the, the licensure piece, you know, we worked very hard. You know, it's good to have a provisional license in place. Um, it's good to ensure there's restrictions on the timeline. Um, you know, we're hoping to build that board the same way Texas did, where literally it's a registry, you know, everything's online. It, you know, you can get licensed in Texas in 48 hours, right, Jeff? So, I mean, um, you know, but you see Arizona where you're on a six-month wait list to get your license, and that's before you can submit credentialing. Uh, some of these byproducts of, of what could occur, it would be nice if the right hand talks to the left hand and that you're able to learn from some of these other experiences. And hopefully is that the advocacy work that you're doing is also informative. It's, it's helping people to realize, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. There's other ways that have worked and whether that's licensure looking at, at Texas. And, and I believe that Utah actually did a pretty good job rolling out their licensure. It's as states start looking at it, is this that maybe there are ways to learn from that experience so that you're not causing access to care issues? Um, so how do you how do you advise that people a stay informed, but b get involved in this process? Whether that's the clinicians now who probably didn't have as much role in the past, or the families because their voice is so powerful. Yeah, I, I think that um, you know I I think there are positives right to licensure in the sense from from the family's perspective you know you want to make sure that yes there are parameters in place that the individual coming to serve you coming to your house or that you're dropping your kid off at the clinic or or at the school right is um you know that there there is some you know level of protection and some understanding of of who they are and and that they meet the qualifications um that they should so from a family's perspective, I, I do think that's a valuable piece. I mean, that's one of the pieces that at BHCOE, we work hard to educate families on also. How should you get involved in knowing that 
the services you're receiving are quality services, like understanding what that looks like, understanding how to make that determination. Um, I think that's that's really important for families, you know, but families also, you, when I talk to families about any type of regulation that's coming out, you know, their involvement needs to be um, make sure that my child is safe, make sure that my child has access. Um, those things have to go hand in hand. It, you can't be a trade off. It can't be, you know, you're going to license and BCBAs or, you know, anything like that. But the trade off is my kid can't access service for nine months or a year, right? Families need to make sure that their voice is heard in that. Um, you know, I think clinicians are doing a really good job, actually, of, of, of standing up and expressing for their field and for what they're doing. Um, what are the important factors in that? So I, I feel, um, I just, I feel like clinicians are really finding their, their foothold and their place in advocacy um, that is related to the quality of work that they're doing and how that's important. Yeah, and I'm, I'm going to sidestep a little bit because you've mentioned quality on several different times. Um, and right now is that the, the safety, the appropriateness of care and the quality of care and access are the four key factors um, that, are, that are really driving how to be able to navigate autism service provision. I know that the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence has, has just recently started a new initiative, and I'd love to just give you a little bit of a platform right now because it, it, it hits on some of this quality. And licensure is a piece to protection, but quality goes beyond that. And maybe you can explain a little bit about what you're doing at the BHCOE right now on the quality initiatives um, that just, uh, I think, just rolled out and, uh, and inform the rest of us on, on what the hopes are. Yeah, we we're so excited. We've been sitting on this and and so we're so excited to uh, actually this morning um, hot off the press announce our collaboration with Cigna um, on a uh, value based pay model that really is the the goal of this is not for BHCOE to say here's the quality measures everyone should be doing and 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 nor Cigna. The goal is collaboration. Um, so we'll be putting together work groups. Those work groups will consist of providers. It will consist of family members and autistic individuals, um, and then the payer, of course. And and those work group work groups will really um, evaluate and build what will be a meaningful framework to determine what are true measures of quality that we can say that everyone needs to be focusing on to ensure children are making progress and making the progress that that they can make right and and so i think it's going to be such an exciting collaboration such an exciting opportunity cigna is really a a, a strong partner and they really um uh, want to build a framework that is going to be meaningful. And, and so we are just very, um, very fortunate uh, to be able to make this um, connection uh, and, and include everyone, right? That's, that's the part that I'm so excited about. We're really able to include everyone um, in this next phase and, and start to look at incentivizing providers too, right? I mean, that's what, you know, providers, um, 
I know that it's been a difficult time for them, right, through the pandemic and all, trying to keep staff, trying to figure out how to manage turnover and all the, you know, things that have occurred um, through the pandemic. And so I think this is also a way for, for them to begin to um, really be incentivized for the quality work that they're doing. I, I truly appreciate the work that you all are doing on that. And as you take volunteers, you got one right here. So. <laughs> So don't, don't lose my number on that call. But um, yeah. I appreciate, Anna, the, the time that you've spent with government relations and helping to advocate and educate and, and also for taking the time to be able to talk with us here today. Thank you for listening and to Autism that Weekly. Gives people we hope you the, tune back in next week to go out there and continue to advocate on their own behalf. So, autism Weekly is now um, found on all the We appreciate it. And hopefully we get back to you, get you out to the podcast Google again podcast, Stitcher, yeah, thanks, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.